Surviving colorectal cancer, or CRC, depends greatly on the stage in which the cancer is diagnosed. Screening can lead to early detection with a five-year survival rate of early-stage CRC as high as 90%. However, because of low rates of screening, only 40% of CRCs are diagnosed in the early stage. This is a real tragedy. Welcome to Modern Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Tomas Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operations and Quality of Visient, and on this episode of our award-winning podcast, we'll examine the latest approaches to less invasive colorectal screening that can help prevent the fourth most common form of cancer. Joining me in this important topic is Dr. Abdul Assis Adam. Dr. Adam, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Dr. Adam, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background, please. Sure. I'm an interventional gastroenterologist. I work at Northwestern Medicine in Chicago. In my practice, I deal heavily with GI cancer, and a particular focus is on detection and prevention of cancer itself. In the early 2000s, there was a procedure that was being developed in Japan called endoscopic submucosal dissection. And in the early part of my career, I found this to be wildly fascinating. It was a procedure that really wasn't being done in the United States. So I actually went to Japan in 2015 and received training at the National Cancer Center in Tokyo, Japan in ESD or endoscopic submucosal dissection. And this has been a phenomenal procedure which allows the removal of early cancers or very complex polyps that might have otherwise been treated surgically. And we've seen several patients that have benefited from this. And when these are removed, these are typically organ sparing and curative. So patients can actually be cured of early cancers. And it's been a real benefit to our community that this is now available. That is amazing. Thank you for sharing. So first of all, how prevalent is CRC? It's important to know that colorectal cancer, it's actually the third most common cancer diagnosed in both men and women in the United States. It's estimated that in this year, 2023 alone, there'll be over 100,000 cases of colon cancer and nearly 50,000 cases of rectal cancer. Pretty astonishing. As a primary care physician, I tend to be pretty sensitive to this because it is so preventable. But what are the risk factors? So I think you can divide this into modifiable or lifestyle factors, as well as factors that you can't really change. So being overweight or obese really does increase the risk of colorectal cancer. And we know that to be especially apparent in men. Not being physically active is another risk factor. Our diets, we feel that our diets have had an impact in the rise in colorectal cancer. Our diets tend to be higher in fat, higher in red meats, or even processed meats. So that has been associated. Other factors such as smoking and even moderate to heavy alcohol use have been associated. Then, of course, you have factors that you really can't control. So a family history of colon cancer or precancerous polyps and other underlying genetic conditions can really predispose you. A history of inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, and even a history of diabetes. I'm certainly seeing it younger, and there have actually been two very good papers that just came out this year alone that showed that it's on the rise among younger people. But I also see a lot more obesity. What would you attribute this rise among younger people? It's a great question, and I'm seeing it every day as well. And it's really heartbreaking, and we don't understand why. That's the honest truth. But for those reasons, there have been changes in recommendations and how we deal with these type of cases. But 
There are groups that we know that are more susceptible to colon cancer. Age is another factor. And the risk of colon cancer does increase with age. Race is another issue. And we know, for example, that black people have the highest rates of non-hereditary colon cancer. And in fact, colon cancer is actually the leading cause of cancer-related death in black people. There's certainly some disparities, and there's a lot of organizations and efforts to combat that. But this phenomenon in younger patients, it's really on the rise. And this phenomenon, we just don't understand why. But for this reason, the data that you mentioned, earlier this year in March, the American Cancer Society had reported that 20% of the diagnoses in 2019 were in patients under the age of 55. That's double the rate compared to 1995. What is even more concerning is that advanced disease had increased by 3% annually in people younger than the age of 55. So, Dr. Adam, this obviously speaks to the importance of making early detection crucial then, wouldn't it? Oh, it sure does. The thing is that colon cancer takes years to develop. By some estimates, it can take 7 to 10 years. And these cancers really start off as precancerous polyps, and they progress over time. So when you have early detection, you can allow identification of these early cancers, which really leads itself to easier treatment options and, of course, much higher chances of cure. And if you think about it a little bit further, colon cancer is really the only preventable cancer. For example, mammograms for breast cancer screening detect actual cancer. And this is where colonoscopy has a distinct advantage compared to other screening modalities because if you can remove a precancerous polyp, then you can halt the pathway to cancer progression. And thereby, when you remove precancerous polyps, you're preventing cancer. As a general internist, I find it challenging to screen my patients, to get them to want to do the colonoscopy. I sometimes use myself as an example of how I was very mindful on getting it, whether it be the prep or just the concept. Also, quite frankly, scheduling it has been an issue. Can you tell me some of the challenges that you've been seeing in reference to early detection? You're absolutely right. The most widely used screening tests, they're not particularly convenient. These stool-based tests require handling of stool with a stick or buckets. And we don't see many people jumping in line because of that yuck factor. As you mentioned, getting a colonoscopy requires a bowel prep, which is by far the least enjoyable part of a colonoscopy experience. You need transportation to get you to and from the colonoscopy. It's not easy when you need someone to escort you home. You know, there's safety reasons. People are getting sedated. To get a a colonoscopy appointment in many areas of the country takes several months. So to identify that ride ahead of time, taking the time off, these aren't very convenient. So these are certainly some challenges. You also mentioned in reference to social determinants of health among certain races, that would probably be a factor as well. Oh, absolutely. There's certain community groups where there's stigmas about cancer and the process to get colonoscopies. That really requires a a broad effort at the community level to really make sure that there's awareness and people understand how important this really is. The American Cancer Society changed its screening recommendations uh, to that of younger people, but There's also been somewhat controversy among other guidelines from other societies, the American College of Medicine, for example, as well. Can you enlighten us on why you think that is? First of all, as we talked about, it's the rise of colon cancer in younger people. So, In 2018, the American Cancer Society had changed its recommendation to start 
screening average risk people at the age of 45. And in 2021, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force and the U.S. Multi-Society Task Force on Colorectal Cancer. These are two groups that provide preventative guidelines, and they recommended that Americans start screening at the age of 45. This was five years than what was previously recommended, and it continued this until the age of 75. So what we've seen is we've seen a dramatic increase in the number of patients. Younger patients tend to be a little more adherent. And so we're seeing a sharp rise in the number of patients who are coming in for colonoscopy. This has been limiting to access. The number of physicians and endoscopy rooms that are available are somewhat fixed. And so we're trying to figure out how do we handle this influx of this younger population. We speak about the younger population before we go into some of the keys to screening. But I also want to touch upon those that are over the age of 75. And since we're speaking about recent studies, there was a recent study where it shows that over the age of 75, there may be some negative effects of getting a colonoscopy as well. Yes, certainly. I think you you have to take into consideration the individual patient. When you see your patient and they're a spry 80-year-old and they're walking one to two miles and otherwise healthy, that's probably a good patient to continue screening. In contrast, we have someone with several comorbidities and the risk of a colonoscopy or anesthesia, sedation in those patients, if they were ever to experience a complication, that can be quite detrimental. So I think it really has to be done at an individual patient level. So what would you think, or in your opinion, or even frankly, what the data shows are keys to increasing screening rates? I think it comes down to awareness and advocacy. I think these are going to be the main drivers that increase our screening rates. The American Cancer Society has partnered with 1,800 other organizations. There's this nationwide goal to reach 80% screening rates in every community. And this really starts at the ground level in primary care, physicians like yourself, community health centers. They're really important. A lot of people may not have their own primary care physician, and they may go to a community health center instead. But this has resulted in some impactful screening rates. If we go back a little over 10 years, in 2012, the screening rate was only 65%. By 2020, it's increased to 70%. Community health centers were very low, 30% in 2012. But it's increased in those community health centers to 42% by 2021. It goes back to patient awareness. It's so important to understand the importance of prevention and the fact that early detection leads to a significant reduction in colon cancer mortality. So I'm very much aware about the data, and it obviously it just makes sense that colonoscopy is by far the best and the gold standard for screening. But can you briefly go over some of the other screening options? Of course. So there's some home-based tests. Mainly, it's a stool-based, what's called a, a FIT test. It stands for fecal immunochemical test. And this looks for a trace amounts of blood in the stool, but it needs to be repeated on an annual basis to be effective. The other one that we're seeing much more commonly being picked up is Cologuard. This is a stool-based test, and it looks for blood or DNA markers that have been associated with colon cancer. This needs to be done every three years. If you look at screening options outside the home from a procedural or an imaging standpoint, virtual colonoscopy had a lot of interest. People said, well, you don't have to go through the discomfort of having the actual procedure done. But what this is, is it's a CT scan but you actually still need a bowel prep. 
And this needs to be done every five years. So this test did show some initial promise. It's performed probably less frequently now and isn't too popular. Then, of course, you have colonoscopy. And as you mentioned, this is really the gold standard. And I think if it is an option for a patient, in my personal opinion, I think it is the best because it allows for detection and removal of precancerous polyps. And that's what halts that cancer progression. So this typically is repeated every 10 years unless they find precancerous polyps and then that recommendation may change. Outstanding. Great job. And next episode, we'll go into more detail on these screening options. And to our listeners, you can contact Dr. Adam at his email address in the resource section of our podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at our email at modernpracticepodcast at visitinc.com. We posted a link in our resource section. And please join us for other Modern Practice Podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. And now, I'm Dr. Tomas Villanueva. Thank you so much for listening.